0: Episode 7 What makes a business idea a success? With Janine Ray from Motive Strategies. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking,
1: relentlessly seeking value.
0: This is Stacy Richter, and I am very excited about the conversation that we're going to listen to today—the one that I had with Janine Ray, founder and CEO of her company Motive Strategies. I was really interested to speak with Janine for two reasons. She's she's an expert in two areas which I hold near and dear to my heart. One of them is innovation, and the other one is customer experience. And I'll, I'll tell you why these two things matter to me. Over the years, as a as an entrepreneur, I've realized something. At the very beginning, when I began my company, I was very worried about people stealing my ideas. You know, I'd come up with a really good idea and then I would turn around and there'd be someone who we had not been hired, but our idea had been appropriated and I would become very upset. But then I realized something. Competitive advantage is not born in one idea. Competitive advantage is actually continuously coming up with new ideas because inevitably your ideas will be be stolen. I mean, if you're in any kind of business where it's really important to be on the cutting edge and really important to be bringing the next big thing to your customers, then where your strength actually is and the reason why people work with you isn't based on one idea. And honestly, if they're willing to take one idea and appropriate it, then they're probably not a good customer anyway. But where your competitive advantage really is and why people will work with you is because you're always bringing those new ideas. That's where the competitive advantage is. No one can steal that from you. So with that, you know, speaking with Janine today, what her expertise is, is helping achieve that, helping achieve that constant stream of of new innovation. But I had kind of a late-breaking notion a little bit later in my career because I started reading things which basically said... Ideas are worthless. What matters is the execution or it's the execution, not the idea itself that holds value. And that's a quote that's been bandied about the Internet and that you read all the time. The other thing that Janine, so this is a pretty natural follow-on, the other thing that Janine specializes in is customer experience, because execution is all about customer experience. If you can have, for any given idea, there's five people probably that have it at the same time as you, and the one that's going to be successful is the one that can execute it the best, the one that can give the customers the best customer experience. So with that, let me introduce Janine. Welcome to the show, Janine.
1: Great to be here, Stacey. Thanks.
0: So you founded Motive Strategies. Would you mind talking a little bit about your company and what you do?
1: Yeah. Well, three years ago, I founded uh, my my own women-owned business. And I'm its CEO. So it's really um, a great honor to be in, in this place. I've been an entrepreneur before, but now it's all my very own. And that's exciting. The work that I do, I really discovered after I graduated from Harvard Business School back in 1989. I was one of those people that like didn't really fit into conventional roles, and when I found design, product development, innovation, I really was completely hooked. And so the work that I do, just it plays to my love of helping people, the human condition to create inspiring new solutions and, and in helping large companies do right by their customers. So I love consulting It fits well with my skills. And I love the challenges. I love all the variety. It's like having a new job every day when you're working on different kinds of problems. And um, more than anything, I love just collaborating with all the smart people that I get to work with that just keep me on my toes. So
0: I'll tell you what I love. I love your tagline, which is accelerate the possible. How, how did you come up with that?
1: That's great that you asked me that question. We just had a, somebody asked me that question in the office the other day. What's that all about, Janine? And so the point is that in, in the innovation world, you use certain processes in order to help visualize and experience possible futures. And so at Motive. We help our clients do this faster through the techniques that we use and also through a grounding in the business realities of getting something to market. So we literally accelerate the possible for our clients by applying all of the techniques and expertise that we have in helping them move things through a very difficult process faster, better and cheaper.
0: This is what I would like to know. You you so you graduated from Harvard in, you know, as you as you said, nineteen eighty nine, and you are today a an entrepreneur in the innovative and the customer experience space, as you mentioned, what happened in the middle there where you got the expertise to coach other high-powered, a lot of your clients are, as you said, very smart people? H- how did you gather the expertise whereby you can actually lead these very smart people in an innovation exercise or a customer experience exercise?
1: You know, really, it just comes from experience. I've just done this for many, many years. I worked for IDEO for a long time. I, I was the first woman on their executive management team, and then subsequently just studied a lot. I studied service innovation in a u- unique way for for quite a long time and got to be an expert in that. So I think choosing to be an expert is a is a, is a great thing to do because it gives you special knowledge that people seek you out to be able to tap into. And so that's that's really sort of been my secret. It's been experience being sort of stick, sticking with the same topic. You know, as I said, I was hooked on this world and it's only gotten bigger and better and more interesting and more complicated over the years and it's just really a passion that I that I have I, I couldn't leave it if I tried it's just too much a part of me
0: so that's a phrase I have never heard before and I love it choosing to be an expert whereas I've never considered this before but I guess everyone does have a choice to make you know some executives choose to go broad and learn everything that there is to know about being a leader whereas others can go deep and and as you say choose to be an, an expert
1: yeah I think it's a- it's a great distinction to make. And certainly I kind of identified myself a while ago as somebody that really didn't love to be inside of, of a large corporation. I love to work for them. I, I love the complicated problems, but I don't see myself as loving being a, being a corporate executive. And so, especially also I'm a mom. So If you want to avoid the move around every few years and the kinds of things that go on in that kind of a world, being an expert is a great option because you get the benefits of being able to play in that exciting world, but with your own expertise. And you get to, again, work with people at a very high level that really need you around them.
0: Although one entrepreneur to another, obviously there are are some downsides to the entrepreneur experience as well. How how have you been able to sort of fold, you know, there's a lot of risk inherent in being an, an entrepreneur. Do you, do you feel that you're particularly amenable to assuming that that risk? I mean, what makes you an entrepreneur or have that entrepreneur spirit to have been able to start your own business?
1: It's a really interesting question. You know, it, it being an entrepreneur is not uh, easy, but I don't really think of myself so much as an entrepreneur. As I think of myself as a consultant. So the being an entrepreneur and trying to keep the business afloat, there's just realities to that. And a lot of it just has to do with being able to run a top line that, you know, works for the structure that you've got in the, in the company. But I, I really think of myself as somebody that's a consultant first and an entrepreneur second. And luckily, we've had a successful business that we've been able to bootstrap and I own it all. And I don't, you know, I'm not really looking for any kind of big investments, although, you know, we could scale and get bigger and that might be good. But at the same time, I'm not sure that I would want to lose that kind of control over, you know, what I'm doing. So I think I'm pretty happy as I am.
0: Something that you you said a second ago caught my ear, and that is you you mentioned service innovation. And I have to admit, I can probably speculate what that means. It's a term that I haven't really heard before. Could you just talk about, you know, what do you mean by service innovation?
1: It was back when I was at at Ideal which was quite a long time ago, more than a decade ago. When the internet came, products became smarter and able to drive services from them. And what I observed was that most of the thought leadership was around innovation was all about products, new products, everything about a thing and not about this intangible thing of service. And so I started studying service innovation because I thought it was going to be a big uh, a big deal. And indeed, 80% of the economy is, is in services, but services are inherently intangible. And so they're harder to capture the essence of them. There's just a lot to bringing a service to market. It's a dynamic thing. We've learned a lot of uh, service service design techniques that help make these intangible things tangible and makes it easier. And it's really a it's, a it's a really a big field that is is going to be coming on. There's a lot more activity and understanding of this over in Europe than there is in the United States. And but you know we're seeing some firms specialize in this in this kind of work and um, it's it's really very exciting, especially because in the services world, nowadays, you have so many more options for business models than you ever ever had before, just because of the internet and how things work. And so, websites, all kinds of things, can enhance your top line and bottom line, and those get worked on in the process of doing service innovation. Where in the product world, it's not that it's not that flexible, it's not that intriguing, and much more mundane by comparison. So today, you see a lot of product service kinds of things, solutions things, and that's why, because you know, putting together a solution is uh, for a customer. That includes products and services is just a better way to go. What's an example
0: of service innovation, or as you just suggested, service design, in the context of a healthcare business? You know, a payer or a provider.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things going on in the, in the device market, for example. So, if you take diabetes monitors, okay, so they used to be very dumb. They were they were just discrete things that would test your glucose, and you would get a reading from software LED or LCD. But now they, that information can be transmitted to your doctor or transmitted into your computer. And then you can actually do your own analytics that you couldn't do before. So that's kind of a service and it's value added to the people that are trying to serve you in many ways, not yourself, who's trying to monitor yourself, your doctor, who's trying to help you and the payer who may be also monitoring how you're doing and um, may, may have some something to say about your progress. So it really extends the utility of a of a device to be able to drive services from it. And there's lots and lots of other examples, but a lot of it has, the medical device area is really, really interesting.
0: What would the service design specifically of that example specifically be then? Would it be figuring out how to transmit the information from the device or would it be sitting around trying to figure out what other things you could do with the product
1: here's where it, the beginning of innovation starts you really have to observe what people are doing and what they what they need to do and so it really would start with some rudimentary contextual research around people that have this condition and what's going on what their problems are and their the group of stakeholders around them would like to see too. So that it's not just the patient involved. There's a two-way street. You know, you'd be wanting to talk to the doctor or the or the institution they're working with or something like that as well to try to understand how they can actually receive the information. So if the idea is that we're going to try to transmit data or we're going to try to help this person by giving them more interaction with their doctor, then that becomes sort of the the basis for you're looking at how, how to actually do that on an end-to-end basis. So you really want to be thinking about the this is an experience, and the experience will start from something like the, the patient becoming aware of this product and choosing that product and helping them through that whole process, and then they, you know, receive the product, use the product, interact with it, et cetera, et cetera. And you're studying that whole process to get an understanding of why why things need to be configured the way they are and the technology pieces are are pretty discreet I think technology works in in pretty basic ways when it comes to telecom and those kinds of things so the, the actual very the, the actual difficulty is trying to design something so that it's so compelling that people really want to use it and have it around because you know how many of those things are just very difficult to use and you get bored with them and they're you know useless and you just throw them away and and that's how people are these days so the trick is to really design experience that really gives people great feedback and they, they want to come back for more. They find it very useful.
0: So the reason that someone should be interested or would be interested in service design or, or service innovation is they want customer retention or, or, or customer acquisition or actually maybe I should be asking you this question what exactly is the motivation where someone would scratch their head and go huh, I, you know I, I need to be more aware of my, my service design or I need to innovate some service here
1: it's all about the customer experience these days and so the, there's there's really three things one one you want to be able to drive loyal customers you want to keep your customers and that you know that that is your form basis and then you kind of drive new revenue off of that so if you can if you can do that that's really important and so you need to keep your customers and the other side of that is that you want to reduce the churn of your customers because the when your customers fall away it costs you a lot of money to get to get new ones And so that's another one of the most important things. And another important thing is to increase referrals. So you want to drive such a great experience. People are talking about it to all their friends. And then those friends pay attention to what they're saying. And they go buy the the service themselves, a product or service themselves. So it's really a three-legged stool. And there's actually even more because if you're really studying your customers, you can often find ways to serve them better, faster, and cheaper by just understanding what they need to do and deploying technology to be able to you know, help their experience along the way. So there's a tremendous amount of value that comes with really looking at it from a customer's perspective. That's a really interesting
0: thought, I, and I might have just had an epiphany. Would you say that it's true that a product alone will not drive a completely delighted customer. In other words, you could have the best product in the world, but unless the customer experience is delightful, at the end of the day, you won't have the the three-legged stool that you talked about. You You won't be driving loyal customers, reducing the churn of customers, or increasing referrals.
1: I think it's true. I mean, if you think, let's just let's just say, let's take an industry like the car industry. So, you know, you'll see major dealerships now really, really, really trying to keep your business. They want to sell you the car. They want to have a great experience doing that. They want you to have a great car, um, obviously. And and auto manufacturers are really on the ball these days, doing all kinds of things to make your life easier inside the automobile. But also the service element is really important. So that equation for, for providers is, is, the most important, is the most important thing to drive because it's a, it's a holistic relationship with the customer. If it's, if it's disjointed, if it's not fun, if it's bad, you know, people just walk away and go find someone else. And so that's why people need to pay attention to it.
0: What are the signs that a healthcare organization or a payer or pharma might see which are symptoms that an improvement in in service design or service innovation might be necessary.
1: You know, the first thing they're going to see if they if they have proper controls in place is that they're going to see that their metrics aren't very good. So they might see their customer satisfaction scores Aren't as good as comparisons in their industry or overall. They're gonna they're gonna have a sense of or or some of these other things are gonna happen. You know, they're not gonna get retention, they're not gonna get referrals, they're gonna be having a lot of customers leave. And so that is a really a big clue that something is wrong. Now, they may not know what it is. For example, a lot of companies these days are using um, NPS, you know, net promoter score to, to see whether they're there, they will be recommended by their customers. And that's just one metric, but it doesn't tell you where your experience might be broken. So they, you really have to be looking at customer satisfaction at every single touch point along the way and find the ones that you're not doing that well at. And, and many companies just haven't gotten all the way there yet to, to be able to understand uh, how to find something that's wrong and fix it. And then, you know, when they do find something that's wrong, there's a process of, of going about trying to understand how to make it right. And that's why that's where a lot of organizations get into trouble is that this whole idea of service innovation, service design, science is not really widespread. Interestingly, even in large service organizations, banks, you know, insurance companies, healthcare providers those kinds of things. They don't really have the staff on board that really understands the the know-how of doing this kind of stuff. And that's why, you know, consultants can get involved and help accelerate the possible. And I would
0: totally agree with you because I've really never heard that terminology in my career, which uh, has been almost exclusively in, in the healthcare space. Do you feel like an organization, a healthcare organization who did spend some time thinking about their service design and and service innovation would have a competitive advantage these days?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you you find people are sort of gearing up to to train entire groups of people to be able to do this because it is the the projects can be kind of big and they can be expensive. But if you can train your own people to do them, which uh, like I said, it's not rocket science, so people can do this fairly easily. In fact, we uh, last year did A touchpoint mapping guide for Kaiser Permanente, for example, they wanted to be able to deliver know how to anyone that wanted to improve an experience throughout their entire system, you know, eight regions, I don't know how many hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And so they wanted to build a guide so that any reasonable person that uh, was directing an area, whether it was the parking lot, the reception area, the ER, They have lots of people around to do quality control in the clinical environment. And indeed, their clinical environment is fantastic. But when it comes to answering the telephone, getting your pharmacy items, you know, all those kinds of things, that's where the doing business with an organization can really fall down. And that really impedes the customer satisfaction and customer experience that people have. And, and you know, it's a balancing act. The clinical is absolutely very important, but the other stuff is very important, too. And so if you're a leadership team that's not paying attention to, you know, how easy is it to do business with us, then you're really missing half of the equation. You
0: mentioned something. Um, you said that for Kaiser you had done touchpoint mapping. Is that the the model that you use, or, or what is touchpoint mapping?
1: I call touchpoint mapping sort of the backbone of customer service or customer experience design, and certainly in design, um, service design, cus- uh, touchpoint mapping is one of the most important things to learn. It's like the basic thing where you're looking at a customer's end-to-end experience, and you're trying to figure out what is that person going through to get a jo- just like to get a job done. You know, to 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 fill a prescription to go to the bank to do you know certain rudimentary things and what you're trying to do is study the touch points that person has along the way so that you can understand what are, for example, things called moments of truth? Moments of truth are, are, are times when your experience are made or broken with the organization that you're dealing with. Like, for example, if you're put on hold for five minutes, you're having a bad experience. It's a moment of truth. and And people think, why can't this organization get to me in five minutes? Why am I on the line this long? Or why are they sending me through this menu that's driving me crazy and I can't get to a person? Those kinds of things. And also you find things like, that are pain points for the or, for the for the customer you may have nothing to do with their pain but you might be able to alleviate their pain in some way by making things easier more convenient for them or or more organized in order for them to sort of get through this this pain point that they have you also might find things that are just delightful that you need to keep doing and reinforcing because that's the best way to start Change management is to is to really reinforce the positive, and these are very important things to be able to actually identify and and be able to show the organization as if, what is going on in the customer's world. Where are we doing well? Where are we not doing so well? And what are we going to do about it?
0: That's really interesting. I almost feel like I'm I'm looking into a parallel universe. We we spend so much time thinking about the patient clinical journey and and what are the medical moments <clears throat> of truth along that journey. It's um it's kind of a revelation. To, to start to think about the other patient journey or as you call, you know, touchpoint map that is, is happening simultaneously. Is this, this the touchpoint map that you're describing, is this, um, is there some sort of, of model that you use that or a process that you go through when you're working with a client?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's there's a big process, in fact. And so when we did the work for Kaiser in putting together a guide, so what we did was we created a guide so that um, they had a kind of a a playbook about how to do this kind of thing. So so one of the first things is really to sort of identify the problem and get people to agree to that. And then you start sort of mapping out your customers. Who's in this world? What are their distinctions? Because, you know, especially in, in medical environments, you see all kinds of people, right? You see very fast-moving people, very tech-savvy people that, you know, are um, likely to be doing everything online and very busy, right? Or you see older people and some of them can't see or they can't walk. Or you see big people these days, a lot of, a lot of um, obese people, you know, how do they move around? What kind of needs do they have? So you really need to study age groups, cognitive levels, physical aspects of them. And often uh, these days too, Stacey, is just cultural things. We have so many more minorities in every city, for example, um, and all of their sort of cultural norms and the way they think about service themselves has to be considered to a, to a certain extent. And that can <laughs> vary widely between populations, and it is very important.
0: I read something that you wrote about one user experience does not fit all. Is is this what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, clearly customers come in like many many shapes and sizes and you've got to study them to understand what's the same about them what's different about them it's important to put together a map of who the customers that you want to study are and look at the extremes of that map as well because you, because when you're designing experience, you really need to design for the, the ends of the bell curve, not the middle of the bell curve. That's what most people do. They think, okay, well, you know, this is the average. We're going gonna to be able to do for the average. But no, that's not right. You need to really do on on the extreme so that you catch everybody in between. And that's a, that's a trick in and of itself. But once you get that map, map built, you need to go out into the field and talk to people and observe people and take videos of them and, and bring that information back to the organization and study it so that other people, who don't have the benefit of getting out into the field have you know know what's going on and they can see the field conditions and how people are dealing with things both functionally like how they're trying to get something done but also emotionally and that's a whole nother area that people forget about is what is what are the what's the emotional situation going on in people's minds uh, when they're going through and oftentimes healthcare is very emotional right there's all kinds of Sad things that happen, happy things that happen, and so where is your organization when your when your um, patient is really really having a tough time emotionally? How are you are you training your people to be able to cope with that, or are you just you know they they're supposed to ignore it? It's it's um, there's there's a lot to it and uh, to to bringing this in, into the organization and having them deal with you know how do we produce a great experience that can really be relevant to our customers? So once you once you Bring this information back, you oftentimes drive some ideation work out of that. You try to come up with solutions that are, um, sometimes they're quick wins, things you can do really easily, and sometimes they're very far-reaching and may have something to do with even changing the culture of an organization. You pick it up as you're doing this kind of stuff. The culture here is not very customer-centered. And so that problem gets laid squarely on the, you know, at the the feet of the leadership in an organization to try to change something like that. So that's why it's so important because you can discover – so many interesting things that can help people very, very quickly. Some of these things are hard to do. They require development, but um, you always find things that you can do very quickly and you always find things that you didn't know existed.
0: How does customer experience, does it directly translate or, or are there any metrics which suggest that that an excellent customer experience directly translates to something that shareholders might be interested in?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question, Stacy. I've done studies over the years that show the difference between organizations that are paying attention to customer experience and those that aren't that show incredible results year over year in the customer experience domain but recently I did a study on companies that had really great design capabilities and this goes for all kinds of design they really are exemplars when it comes comes to this and I found in my analysis which over 10 years we had a lot of very stiff criteria for being able to fit these companies in. And we only found 15 companies that were traded, um, that were US traded companies that fit this criteria. But we show that over a 10 year period, companies that had invested in de- building design capabilities had a 228% return over the S&P over the same period of time. So it was a really very impressive statistic, and, you know, we can go into the reasons why, but a lot of this has to do with being closer to customers, for being able to develop solutions faster, to be able to engage the organization in new ways, because, you know, innovation and just getting the emotions right and, and, and those kinds of the aesthetics right, it takes a lot of right brain skills, and, and so... Those companies that respect right brain skills and can promote them, you know, have shown that they they can do they can do really well and they can outperform
0: year after year. That is really impressive. And by design, you mean both product design as well as service design. Am Absolutely. I getting that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. These companies are they're just designed forward. They have, they're design led. Their executives are their design executives are leading their companies. to a company like Nike and Apple and Target and those kinds of companies that really have put an emphasis on that. And the American co- consumer really resonates with that. They love great design.
0: That's a really, really interesting and actually reminds me of something I read yesterday by one of your fellow Harvard alumnus, a guy named Roger Martin. And the, the, the thing that I really took away from an article that he wrote is exactly what you're saying, which is that strategy is more imagination than it is analytics. What he was saying was that a lot of times analysts are put into positions of, of strategy where they need to think strategically. And his point was that if you're trying to look forward, imagination and those kind of right brain skills and making connections that at the starting line don't make sense, it takes a lot more right brain thinking than, than analysis.
1: Roger Martin is brilliant. He, he can articulate these things that uh, other people can't. And it's certainly I follow his work and I think he's tremendous. And that's a great, that's a great example of what we're talking about here because the design skill set really helps to explore what's in the imagination, both from the designer standpoint and from other people's standpoint as well. You know, they can help facilitate the idea, the articulation of ideas in in new ways. Get them out of left brain people, for example, and, and put them on the table so that they can be played with and incorporated into other people's thinking. So it's it's really very, very intriguing and not very well understood I'm starting to write blogs for the hbr.org uh, um, because they beg me really be, to help uh, their audience understand design management more, especially from a business perspective and how how design can can foster business results. And I'm I'm just so pleased to be able to do that. Well, congratulations! That is that is an honor, really. HBR, huh? It
0: is. When you first begin speaking with potential customers, what what do they tend to ask you?
1: You mean customers or clients? I mean customers that I might be studying. Uh, uh, in the field or, or, or clients. Um, I not. mean, when you first show up, you know, so somebody at an
0: organization decides, hey, we might you know, they, they get a glimmer that that their customer design, their service design might not be what, what it should. You know, perhaps they're having, they're churning through customers or they're not able to acquire customers as, as they would like to see. And, and someone gets the bright idea that perhaps service design is to blame. So they, they call you in and they, you know, it's it's kind of a, an exploratory meeting. Do do, do those people tend to gravitate towards certain questions?
1: You know, Stacey, it's almost inevitably the same thing they don't have the insights they need to get an edge. And either they don't, they don't have any research, marketing research, or marketing research from a survey perspective is not very helpful in these kinds of things. What you really need to understand is how people are, need to operate and what their uh, you know, sort of functional and emotional needs are. And that, that is not, you can't get that in a survey. And you, and you often can't get that in a focus group because you, you put people in this very contrived environment and, and start asking them questions. What you need to do is follow them around, sit in their office, observe what they do, figure out what kind of problems they have, figure out what kind of technology that they use. What do they love? What do they hate? What companies do they admire? Ask them very open-ended questions. And then you start getting the the insights to be able to actually design something. You can't design for a mass market. You have to design for people. And so understanding who those people are, as we talked before, is uh, a very important part of the question. Now, different when you're doing for consumer markets because consumers are dealing with a consumer, but if you're dealing with the B2B market where you've got a lot of different people in the stakeholder stack of a client relationship, say a big tech company or something like that that's trying to serve another large large company, then it becomes even more complicated because you've got different kinds of people that are at different levels in the organization that have different kinds of needs, And people underestimate how much work it takes to actually get that right. And they get frustrated when things aren't going well, but maybe they haven't spent enough time really studying the situation to be able to drive solutions for every single one of those customers that might be in that customer stack.
0: Is that what you mean by outside-in service design as opposed to inside-out?
1: Yeah. Yeah. that You know, a a lot of large service organizations are really sort of built, have built their, their services around what's most convenient for them to produce. And so the new way of thinking should be that you should be thinking about what is the best way for your customers to be interacting with you. So, you know, just take the cable industry for, you know, like the, <laughs> they're the low man on the totem pole or telecom, for example, although telecom's gotten better. But there's a lot about the customer experience in, uh, you know, just installing and using your cable TV that is just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And and it's all at the convenience of the provider of all that equipment and, you know, your remotes and and the inner, the screen interfaces and everything else. A lot of it's not very well considered, and it's very frustrating for, for uh, customers that are paying a lot of money. You need to pay seventy-five dollars a month for cable or more. You know, you, sh- you shouldn't have that kind of experience. And that's why people are up in arms.
0: And that actually is a striking parallel to some conversations that I've been having recently with, with people who have home health equipment or mm-hmm. people who are trying to install home health equipment, that it, it can be very difficult to install from a, a provider standpoint, but it also can be very difficult to use and for, for, for the patient. So that draw, that's a big parallel in my mind.
1: Oh, yeah, and it's exactly the same thing. You know, what those providers ought to be doing is really, really studying what the condition is in most of, the, most of the houses that this stuff is going to go into and what the, what the cognitive ability is for the people that they're, they're designing for. Because the people that are designing that equipment are inherently more technically oriented than the people that are going to be installing that equipment. And are they considering like, you know, the extreme, like the, the least tech savvy kind of customer? What does that customer need in order to get the job done? And uh, starting from that base rather than a higher base of, you know, well, we all know what this stuff does and, you know, you ought to be able to know that this should connect to this and people don't know that stuff. And you shouldn't have to, you know, call the Geek Squad to, to, to do it either. I mean, some of it doesn't justify that kind of an expense. And that's where failure, huge failure, millions of dollars. Uh, wasted and lost in opportunity costs and other productivity goes to these kinds of bad decisions that people are making just to spend a little bit of money to really study the problem and get it right for the customer.
0: Yeah, you know, Kent Dix from Allier Connect put this really well. He said nurses need to be clinicians, not technicians. Yeah, (laughs) I thought that was great. What's coming up for you, Janine? You know, you got any speaking engagements or, or, or cool things that you're working on?
1: yeah you know there I, I did with that study that we did on design I've gotten a lot of accolades and a lot of invitations and so I'm giving a talk at the opening of a the design Museum of Boston next week I'm going to be up there to give a talk on uh, the value of design to business and I'm supposed to be talking in Austin and Helsinki later on this year and I'm going to continue to write my blogs for HBR so there's a lot going on we're also playing with it around the idea of writing a book on customer experience design that's got a lot of our secrets and tips in it. And um, some, I think, some really leading edge stuff. So that's also very tempting to sit sort of sit down and write a book, but the business goes on. And so it's it's one of those things where we're trying to find the time to do it. So there's not enough hours in the day, certainly, to do the kind of stuff that we're trying to aim to do. But we uh, continue to think of ourselves as thought leaders in this space and really enjoy it. And I think we have a a little you know, different insights than uh, than a lot of other people do because we understand both the sort of soft side of this equation of customer experience and innovation, but also the hard side. How do you do it in your company? How do you make it work? How do you um, you do the change management work? This is the the, the problems that really really intrigue me as a as a business person. And it really helps me uh, feel good about helping my clients because they're so desperate to try to make change and to keep being competitive. It's an inspiration to get up every day and go to work. If there is a... Payer or a
0: provider or a device manufacturer or pharma company that would be interested in hiring you either for a speaking engagement or for a consulting engagement. How, how do they get a hold of you?
1: Modestategies.com, Janine at uh, Modestategies.com, and um, anybody will re- you know return their call. We love new business. We love to, love speaking engagements. I've also done a lot of executive education, interestingly, in the. In the farmer world, at least, and uh, that's a really ripe audience for to just get the basics down. Why do people need to care about this? And and um, and what does it mean to them? And what do they have to do about it? Yeah, we have lots of ways of teaching this kind of material, and that auction, you know, and doing the work and helping with the transformation work. We have a really good framework for managing customer experience at the enterprise level. That and we have a lot of white papers on our website if people want to learn more about this kind of stuff. But certainly, there's no better way than to learn than to have a conversation, and I, I love to do that.
0: That sounds great. And I will put links to the aforementioned items in the the show notes. So you can easily click through to Janine's Motive Strategies website. Excellent. Thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, Stacy. It's been a pleasure.
0: Links to Janine Ray's website, Motive Strategies, are located at relentlesshealthvalue.com/slash-seven. If you enjoyed what you heard today, I would really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. If you go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review, you also can subscribe to the show in iTunes. If you don't want to have to remember to go over to the website every week and download the MP3, if you subscribe to the show in iTunes, it will automatically just show up. I hope you'll tune in next week for my conversation with Mark Conklin from PQS.